0: Faith Penick is a Chicago-born, Los Angeles-based filmmaker and writer. Her films include the documentary Silent Choices, the narrative short film Running on Eggshells, and her most recent film, Weightless, a documentary short about plus-sized female scuba divers. Faith is also a contributing writer to pop culture website The Learned Fangirl and the author of D'Angelo's Voodoo, which was published as a part of our 33 and a Third series. In this episode, I talked to Faith about her book, and her passion for D'Angelo's music. We also look at D'Angelo's career, his infamous Untitled music video, his experience as a Black artist, and much more. Take a listen. Welcome to the Bloomsbury Academic Podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Morovsky, and today I'm with Faith Penick, the author of D'Angelo's Voodoo. Thank you so much for being on the show, Faith.
1: Thank you, Rebecca.
0: Just to get started, I wanted to know a little bit about your background and what compelled you to write about voodoo over other D'Angelo albums and over other artists.
1: Well, as far as my background, I am a filmmaker and a writer. I started out my career in print journalism. And early on transitioned into documentary filmmaking, but I continued to write like freelance articles about different subjects. So I still sort of held on to part of that journalism element in my career. As far as why I wrote about voodoo, it was my sister's idea really to write this 33 and a third book. She knows, like anybody who knows me personally, knows how much I love Voodoo, that Voodoo is my all-time favorite album. And actually, she has wanted to write a 33 and a Third book for the longest time about her favorite album. I won't say which one. I don't want to embarrass her. But I think it came up while we were on vacation in Mexico in 2016, laying by the pool, and we started talking about 33 and a Third. And she had mentioned again the book she wanted to write, and we were talking about it. She looked at me and said, You know what? You need to write a book about food. And I was like, Oh, crap. (laughs) And you know, it was just like, Oh, you know, like this light bulb moment, right? I sort of said, Yeah, maybe I do. And I sort of took it as challenge accepted. So when I got back home, I wrote a proposal, which for any of you, who are familiar with how you get to potentially write a 33 and a third book. They have open calls. You have to send a proposal. It's a pretty intricate thing you have to do. And it was a lot of work, in my opinion. It's almost like the book you write before you write the book. So I wrote the proposal, sent it off. And I think early 2017, heard from Gail Wald, who at the time was on the editorial board for 33 and a third books. She's also a professor at George Washington University. And she said, Hey, I really liked your proposal about Voodoo and we'd like to see it published. It's funny because I just sort of did it and it was a lot of work. I was actually sort of surprised at how much work it was to really put together this proposal for consideration. When I wrote it, I was like, if they say yes, great. If I don't, whatever I tried. Maybe someone else will get to write the voodoo book. But 33 and a third and Bloomsbury said, yes. So I was like, okay, I guess I'm going to be a book author. So yeah. So that's how it happened. And it's funny because it wasn't until after it was approved and I started working on it and I realized like, Oh, this is sort of a big deal because when you see how many people submit for 33 and a third compared to the people who are actually selected and particularly since voodoo had been pitched before, So I was like, oh, okay. I guess I'm sort of special. I mean, it sounds arrogant, (laughs) but at the same time, I was like, oh, all right. This is sort of cool. So yeah. So that's basically how it happened. And it was my destiny to write about this album that I love so much. And it's funny because when I told like my friends and my relatives, and actually one friend in particular back in New York, and we didn't even know each other when Voodoo came out. My friend Kathleen. And I had mentioned to her that I just got the green light to write about voodoo for 33 and a third. And she just looked at me and said, of course you did. Mm. This is the book you were meant to write. And I looked at her like, you didn't even know me in 2000 when voodoo came out. So obviously I had talked to her about voodoo incessantly to the point where she was like, yes, we know. Go write the book. <laughs> just It's just sort of funny to me that even for people that I didn't even realize I communicated my passion for voodoo to them. and. They were like, yes, go forth and be productive and write the book you were meant to write. So here I am.
0: Why Voodoo though? Like, what is it about this album that you love so much? Why does it mean so much to you? What did you experience when you listened to it for the first time?
1: Rapture? (laughs) That seems sort of extreme, but I mean, it really was a life-altering experience for me to listen to that album. And I wrote about it in the book where I was just like, what is happening to me? It felt like sort of an out-of-body experience listening to Voodoo the first time. I just feel that, one, it's just an amazing musical achievement, particularly when you compare D'Angelo's first album, Brown Sugar, which came out in 1995, which is more of a straightforward R&B record with radio-friendly songs. And to be completely honest, I wasn't that huge of a D'Angelo fan before Voodoo came out. I mean, I liked Brown Sugar. I think it's well-made and he's obviously talented, but I wasn't like the vast majority of my friends and peers who were like, oh my God, D'Angelo, he is the future. Oh my God. And I was like, yeah, he's okay. <laughs> I didn't see it or hear it, but then Voodoo comes out in 2000 and I was like, oh, this is what everybody was talking about as far as D'Angelo. I heard it in that album. And I think because it's such, to me, like a quantum leap from Brown Sugar and just so challenging and different, there's so much emotion in that album. I mean, so it's not just musically that it's so complex and just really out of the box as far as anything that was really being played on radio, on R&B radio at that time. It spoke to me on a visceral level. and. When I say that, I'm talking about like the lyrics and the things that D'Angelo was writing about as far as like uncertainty, loneliness, falling in love, falling out of love. He had just become a father for the first time. So it was obvious that that was a big theme in the album. So with Voodoo, you're not just on a musical journey with D'Angelo, you're also on an emotional journey. And I didn't even realize I was ready for it. It was just sort of like, Okay, I mean, I think part of that is because I wasn't in love with Brown Sugar. And so I just, when it came out, I was just like, oh, okay, D'Angelo has a new record out. Let me check it out. I had no vested interest one way or the other. And so when it just completely knocked me off my feet, I was at that point an acolyte. I was like, yes, D'Angelo, he is the one. I will follow him. Even when a lot of people weren't necessarily that in love with the album, because I think it's dense and it's experimental. And I think you had to be ready for it. You had to be open to it. And so I did sort of feel like it was sort of this, I don't want to say secret language, but like this language that only a few of us could understand that D'Angelo was communicating in voodoo. Like this Morse code where you were like, oh yeah, I hear your message, I see it. And like he was speaking to me in particular. I think most people have that one album or a few albums of books, films, plays, you know, where particularly if it hits you at a certain moment in your life or a certain moment in time where you're just like, that completely spoke to me. Oh my God. And I think that Voodoo was the album at that time that I needed to hear. I
0: mean, it sounds like it was almost like a revelation for you. And then on that point of it kind of being like Morse code of it not being understood by the masses or appreciated by the masses, you know, when we talk about voodoo as an album, people talk about soul, they talk about funk, they talk about r and I mean, how would you describe the album conceptually when it seemingly invokes so many different genres?
1: For ease of marketing and explanation, voodoo is definitely an r and album. But as you just said, it reaches beyond the genre of R&B. Voodoo embraces gospel, rock, jazz, hip hop. It's an eclectic and an experimental album. The problem is, is that at the time and even now, there isn't really a classification for that kind of fusion within soul music. So, I mean, Voodoo is definitely an R&B album. It's definitely a soul album, but it's much more than that. It's bigger than that. and. I wish there was a way for fans to talk about soul music in the way that scholars talk about, say, jazz, music scholars and critics. Jazz, there was a while where, particularly when you think about Miles Davis, like when he came out with Bitches Brew, for example, that people were like, what is this? Oh, my God, this fusion, this this isn't jazz. What are you doing? You know, or when Bob Dylan went electric, you know, oh my God, what are you doing? (laughs) You can't do that. You're a folk singer. You can't play electric guitar. I think this was sort of D'Angelo sort of blowing up soul music. And I wish there was a way to talk about it. That's more inclusive of other genres in the way that we talk about again, jazz, for example, I think now jazz isn't just like one thing. It's just horns. It's just a piano or whatever like I think you can have different elements and it's still jazz you know what I'm saying I mean and you may not like it I mean there's a lot of people who don't like Kenny G but he made jazz more commercially acceptable in a way although I think D'Angelo was actually doing the opposite I think he was trying to make soul music more I don't think he was trying to make it exclusive I think he was doing what he wanted to do and he wasn't coloring by numbers he wasn't trying to make an album that was going to get a lot of radio airplay. He really didn't care. He wanted to make an album that embraced all of the artists that he grew up listening to and the artists that were inspiring him at the time. And a lot of those artists, again, this is late 90s, were really inspiring him were hip-hop artists. So again, you have this hip-hop element. And he had jazz because he was working with Roy Hargrove, the late great trumpeter. He also had Charlie Hunter on the album, who was a great jazz guitarist. Obviously, he grew up, in I'm sure, I know we're going to get into this later, but he grew up listening to gospel and playing in his family's churches. and all. That. So he was trying to just throw all this in a pot and put out an album reflecting all that. And fortunately, I think when talking about it on a general level, I think a lot of fans and even some critics, frankly, they don't have the bandwidth to sort of accept it for what it is, which is all of those things, instead of it's an R&B album. Like that's what it is. That's the label we're putting on it so that it's easier to talk about. And it's not easy to talk about. It's not a one-dimensional album, which is why I love it so much. And that's partly what inspired me to write the book. So a very long answer to basically, yes, it's a soul album, but it's bigger than that.
0: Yeah, I appreciate the long answer. It's hard to be palatable to the masses when he's trying to emulate like a very specific kind of sound. You mentioned a little bit about him trying to embody the artists that he loved, that he grew up with. Could you talk a little bit about how his background ultimately shaped this album and like how it came to fruition?
1: Sure. Well, D'Angelo was born and raised in Richmond, Virginia, and was... Raised in what is called the Holiness Church, which is a part of the Pentecostal church. Mm -hmm. And really from when he was a child, was just raised in it, infused in gospel music. He played keyboards. He sang in choirs. Both D'Angelo's father and grandfather were ministers, and he performed in both of their churches in the Richmond area. As a child. So, gospel is in D'Angelo's DNA as an artist. You couldn't remove it if you wanted to, and I don't think he would want to. And so, again, when people talk about D'Angelo being a soul artist, you have to also talk about him on a certain level being a gospel artist as well, because gospel is the through line in all three of his albums that he's put out in his career. But he also grew up, like a lot of us did, he grew up listening to a lot of legendary artists in R&B and soul. Artists like Marvin Gaye, Earth, Wind & Fire, Curtis Mayfield, Stevie Wonder, and his biggest influence of all, Prince. I mean, it was his older brother, Luther, who turned him on to Prince and bought records and snuck them into the house so that they could listen to it secretly because his sexually explicit lyrics wasn't going to go over well with such a religious family. So, if you got your mother and your relatives that are super pious, you got to listen to songs like Controversy and Do Me Baby on a really low volume. So, but Prince was the one that really, I mean, D'Angelo has talked about how Prince was his biggest influence as an artist. So, all of those influences are interwoven throughout his discography. But I think voodoo in particular is where he broke the mold of his own upbringing as a singer, where you hear him really weaving in other genres and influences, and not just R&B and gospel, but hip-hop. Because again, hip-hop, particularly in the mid to late 90s, was really becoming its own force of nature in the music industry. But he was listening to a lot of hip-hop. He was listening to jazz, and he grew up listening to jazz as well. He was trying to take these influences that he had as a child, but expand on them and also expound on his own emotional growth as an artist. And I think you hear that much clearer in Voodoo than you do in Brown Sugar. Brown Sugar is a pretty, as well-made as it is standard r and album, whereas Voodoo was D'Angelo and the people he was working with going to the next level. And trying to create something mystical, magical out of the building blocks that were his earlier influences.
0: Yeah, it's conceptually just like an extremely dense album. Something that you write a lot about, actually, is how the album precisely taps into the vulnerabilities faced specifically by Black men in the United States. How was the album so poignantly able to capture these kinds of sensibilities?
1: As talented as D'Angelo is as a musician and singer, he's also just as talented as a lyricist. D'Angelo is not afraid to express a more vulnerable and reflective side. And it's a kind of sensitivity that was growing out of favor in the late 90s and early aughts. And part of that was with the rise of rap and hip hop. Rap and hip-hop was defining more how Black men should express themselves musically. So I think that's where, when you listen to voodoo, when you hear songs like The Line, like One More Again, which is about basically the one that got away, the woman that he sort of wishes maybe was still in his life. Songs like "Send It On and Spanish Joint. D'Angelo really embraced his emotions and putting it out there. He was not interested in sort of positioning himself with this sort of super masculine veneer. He wore his heart on his sleeve as a songwriter. And I think voodoo was a vessel for him to communicate his emotional turmoil. For example, when he started recording the album, he had just broken up with His partner, romantically and professionally, Angie Stone. And she was also the mother of his first child. So that tumult led into him recording Voodoo. And it actually got into another relationship with a woman while he was recording the album, Gina Figueroa. And I wrote about that in the book. And that led to more songs about romantic upheaval, losing your balance when you're trying to be in a relationship and also trying to have a career in a very tough industry. And again, D'Angelo was a first-time father when he was recording Voodoo. And those kinds of experiences resulted in him having more of a thoughtfulness towards love and lust and risk-taking and what it means to be a black man in a racist society where black men aren't supposed to succeed. And if anything, there are stumbling blocks to keep black men from succeeding. And also, I mean, I don't know D'Angelo personally. I did not interview him for the book, but it seems to me just in the research that I've done and following his career, D'Angelo is a very complicated person and is almost like an empath in the sense that he feels everything and then has to like put it out into the world via song. And so I think that gives him an ability, and also this is heightened because of his talent and because of his musical acumen, to tell these stories similar to someone like Bob Dylan, to tell these stories that reflect the time, that reflect the place of his own experiences, but also, I think, the experiences of what a lot of Black men in particular probably may have gone through or were feeling and He's speaking personally, but also capturing the emotions of a lot of people who otherwise wouldn't be heard.
0: In particular, you highlight the song Devil's Pie, and you argue that it represents the, quote, main artery of emotions, energy, and creative conflict of D'Angelo and his contributors.
1: Why do you feel that way about this song in particular? Devil's Pie, to me, is the song on the album that, Really lays bare D'Angelo's fears and insecurities about being a musician and being a black man in America. You can hear it from the production of it, the samples that are used, particularly the song from Fat Joe, a song called Success, where if you go and hear the Fat Joe song, it's like the perfect underbelly to what D'Angelo was singing about in Devil's Pie. It's a great companion piece to that song. And but Fat Joe is singing about it like, I mean, it's almost like bragging about being a hustler and being successful and what that means, which basically means to him, money and sex. And D'Angelo is sort of the flip side of that saying, yeah, money and sex is great. But what does that mean to me as a person? Like, what does that mean for my soul? What does that mean for me as an artist? Does that make me a hypocrite? And he's really just sort of articulating that in devil's pie. I mean, there are a couple of lines that stuck out to me. There's one lyric where he says, I myself feel the high of all that I despise. So he's acknowledging that, yeah, what's happening right now in my life, the success, the money, the fame, and everything that brings is, yeah, I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying this ride, but then it's sort of It may be eating away at him. And again, this is him coming to this realization as a Christian. And again, as a new father, as you know, so he's trying to work this out because he's like, well, yeah, I'm enjoying this. But is that corrupting me as a person? Another line where he says demons screaming in my ear, all my pain, all my fear. I mean, I'm not diagnosing D'Angelo. I'm not a mental health professional, but he is basically outlining anxiety and depression. And devil spy. and those are the kinds of things that particularly, unfortunately, African-Americans are expected to swallow and keep to themselves. So he's trying to articulate, I think, a lot of things, particularly that successful Black people sort of face because it's sort of like, if I've made it, quote unquote, does that make me a sellout? to my community? Does that mean I'm part of the problem? Am Mm -hmm. I contributing to the ills and the social problems that continue to go on, particularly in African-American communities? Am I doing enough to help end those types of inequities? So, I mean, you can look at that on a sociological level, but coming back to D'Angelo and just his own struggles as an artist, he works in an industry, the music industry that cares more about making money than pure creativity mm-hmm. and I think that's something that D'Angelo, particularly now, in hindsight, if you go back and look at his work and really just how he just puts out work and then just drops off the grid, basically, he really just wants to make music. He doesn't necessarily even wants to participate in selling it anymore as far as like doing publicity and you know, tour, but even touring he doesn't necessarily want to do unless he feels like he has to. I mean, I think that is the dichotomy that exists within him. there's like he wants to be as great of an artist as possible, but knows that he is part of an industry that they need to move units. Records need to be sold. That's how he takes care of himself and his family. And so I think Devil's Pie is the really the song on the album that represents how unsure he is that D'Angelo can rise to his own expectations musically and personally. I think in that song, D'Angelo is bringing the darkness into the light. He's really acknowledging that it's sort of the, you know, be careful what you wish for because you might get it. I Mm -hmm. think Devil's Pie is sort of the theme song to that sentiment.
0: Right. And You've already touched upon this a little bit already, but it's worth repeating. In terms of Devil's Pie, in terms of D'Angelo's relationship to his music and clearly not doing this for the fame like he was doing it to produce music that spoke to him, he wasn't as much concerned with publicity or the actual marketing aspect of music creation. But what does it actually mean to sell yourself to the devil in terms of Black artists at large living in America now? I mean... Is this an accusation that
1: other Black artists are getting? Yeah, well, I mean, let me go back a little bit. I think when D'Angelo first got into the music industry, I'm sure he wanted to be famous. I think most people who become recording artists, maybe they don't want to acknowledge it, but on a certain level, they do want to be famous. And I think the fame, once he reached that level of fame at such a young age, I think it scared him a little bit and he retreated. And then he was like, okay, you know what? I just want to make music. I don't need the fame element of it, the spectacle element of it. But that's an industry that sort of expects it at that point. So, again, that's where I think he felt the conundrum had sort of really gelled in his situation, in his life. As far as selling yourself to the devil, I want to give credit to that phrase. I interviewed Imani Perry, a professor of African-American studies at Princeton, For the book, and she was the one who said, What does it mean to sell your soul to the devil? And Imani Perry was specifically talking about Devil's Pie in that instance. And I think it's a worthwhile question. Any recording artist on a certain level is playing a role. You may not be your 100% true self when you're trying to sell records. D'Angelo himself described Devil's Pie as a blues song like those that were sung by chain gangs and slaves picking cotton. And I think he felt like his journey as a recording artist was something that forced him to choose image over integrity. And I think he may have felt like he was giving up some of his own power And understand that this is an industry that has a baleful record of taking advantage of black recording artists and songwriters throughout history. So it was a commentary on D'Angelo personally, but I think Devil's Pie was a commentary on his place in the industry and society, where in both cases African Americans have been used up and cast out. Their labor has been used to make money for other people, and they didn't necessarily get their fair share of the spoils. So I think that's why, I mean, again, going back to I myself feel the hot of all that I despise, he despises that aspect of it, that aspect of being used up, being exploited, maybe not making the money that you're entitled to, giving up more rights than you should be, giving up just to get that one shot at fame, at success. And that can weigh you down. And I mean, there are so many musicians who, and I mean, not just African-Americans, but in particular, older African-Americans who have talked about how they've been ripped off by publishers, ripped off by record companies. Even you can look at what's happening with Taylor Swift now, <laughs> you know, the, the thing <laughs> with Scooter Braun, you know, buying up her catalog. And she feels that she's been done wrong in that instance. So you don't even have to look that far into the past for examples of like that. So yeah, I mean, I think African Americans have not fared well overall in a capitalist America, you know, and that's in different areas, different industries. I mean, the United States was literally built by the unpaid Exploited, kidnapped labor of African Americans—you know, of people who were brought here against their will. So, Devil's Pie doesn't exist in a vacuum. It exists in the larger context of the history of the United States, the history of the recording industry, and his own personal history. And I think it's those kind of layers. Again, this is why I think that song and Voodoo in general, is such an amazing album, because. You have all these different layers, all these different sort of door, you know, you open a door and it leads you into another room that leads you to another door and you walk through that. It's a very nuanced album dealing with these different things, these different aspects of life that D'Angelo was, again, trying to put voice to or did put voice to. And that's what makes, you know, when you go back and listen to it, particularly now that we can reflect on it 20 years later. It gives it a new resonance. You can shine a new light on songs like Devil's Pie and maybe even excavate more nuggets of wisdom and emotional expression that maybe you missed when it first came out in 2000.
0: And I think there's so many good examples of this in D'Angelo's career. This tension between making profit over integrity, as you were saying, of doing Right, by the kind of music that you want to create versus being taken advantage of by production companies, or trying to render yourself more palatable to a society that has stolen so much from people of color already. But, like, I think a really good example of this is actually what is notoriously called the video. And maybe for people listening out there, you already know what the video is. But, I mean, can you talk a little bit about, like for somebody who, as you've said already, for at least part of his career was really, he had a very difficult relationship with his celebrity. As somebody who wanted to avoid at some point in his career blowing up quite in the way that he did, how did that music video come about? And also, can you explain exactly what the video is and yeah. the, controversy, the controversy behind it and sure. what it actually did to D'Angelo's career?
1: Right. The video is the music video. It's what primarily African-Americans refer to as the music video that dropped in late 99 for D'Angelo's single, Untitled, parentheses, How Does It Feel? And basically, for those of you who haven't seen it yet, it is on YouTube, so definitely check it out if you haven't, because then the context will make sense. Basically, D'Angelo is naked. I mean, he's not really naked. He's naked from the chest up. But the way the video is shot is that you see his pretty much perfectly ripped torso, six pack arms, the whole thing. And his body does a 360 turning throughout the video. And it's just basically him singing this love song into the camera while he's giving the illusion of being naked. And I mean, on a certain level, it's very simple, but the power of that video, I think just extends beyond the simplicity of it. I mean, it really is an example of sort of less is more. So that is the description of the video. Basically it came about because D'Angelo's manager at the time, Dominique Trenier, before Voodoo came out, had an idea. He wanted something that would make D'Angelo and the album Voodoo, The Talk of the Town. He didn't want the album to just sort of come out and die on the vine. And I think probably because he knew there wasn't going to be a lot of radio airplay because of the songs that he had already heard up to then, it was probably clear to him that this isn't going to be a turntable-friendly album the way Brown Sugar was, in the sense that it was going to get played at parties and cookouts and on the radio. So we have to do something that's going to create a splash. So Trenier thought of this video where D'Angelo is perceived as being naked. And D'Angelo at first was like, I don't know if I want to do this. Understand that D'Angelo is very shy. And he sort of was like, what do you mean you want me to be naked? And eventually he came around to the idea and he did it and filmed a video. Paul Hunter was the director of the video. Dominique Trenier is credited as co-director let me backtrack. I think up to that point, D'Angelo had, obviously he did promotions for Brown Sugar and toured and whatever. So I actually think it was this video that I think sort of turned him off to promotion publicity. I think this video turned him off to a lot of things. The entitled video comes out around November, 1999, and just completely changes the conversation around d'angelo in particular because then it's like wait who because he didn't look like that when brown sugar came out i mean as far as his body i mean he had hired at the time a very prominent celebrity trainer named mark jenkins and just worked out religiously while he was recording the voodoo album so this was not the guy in this like sort of heavy leather coat pensively leaning over the keys on the cover of the brown sugar album this was D'Angelo, the Adonis. Right. And uh, we meaning and when I say we, I mean, women, in particular, black women were like, oh, my God, what is this? Who is this beautiful black man singing about how he wants to be everything that we desire? Like, where did this come from? (laughs) And where have you been all my life? So it was thirst. Talk about quenching a thirst. That video (laughs) did it. Dominique Trenier. I mean, in that sense, he was a genius because he knew exactly what would get people talking probably knowing that black women were a big chunk of D'Angelo's audience and fan base. He was like, I'm going to speak directly to them. I mean, I'm talking to you. I'm not talking to anybody else, meaning black women. The video went into heavy rotation on MTV. BET played it. Like for several months, it got so much media coverage. Like it just seemed like for a good, maybe six months, the question I kept hearing over and over, particularly from black women I knew with either in the beginning, have you seen a new D'Angelo video? I mean, as opposed to, Hey, how are you doing? You know, what's going on in your life? Have you seen a new D'Angelo video? And then it just became like these, I guess now you would call them think pieces, but at the time it was just like articles and blog pieces and what, just people analyzing the video. Like, what does it mean? What does it mean about sexuality? What does it mean about black masculinity? Is it selling records? Is D'Angelo single? Whatever. Can I get his phone number? I mean, it was just, it just got really weird. But what ended up happening was that the video was really a victim of its own success in that people were talking far more about the entitled video than they were talking about the Voodoo album. And it was the snowball that became an avalanche. D'Angelo would perform live and we would have women in the front throwing their panties on stage, yelling at him to take it off. He would reach over to shake people's hands and women would basically try to rip his clothes off. D'Angelo started resenting that because first and foremost, he is a musician and he felt like he was being objectified. He felt like he was being diminished as an artist. Other, I mean, Questlove, Roy Hargrove, I mean, people who are on tour of him have all commented on this. I mean, so none of this is new information, but The focus became D'Angelo, the sex symbol, as opposed to D'Angelo, the artist. And that made D'Angelo angry. And it made him sort of fall into a black hole of insecurity, of self-doubt. I mean, he just was like, is anyone going to take me seriously as an artist after this? I think critics did. Music critics didn't waver on how great Voodoo was. And I think people who appreciated him as an artist from the beginning still appreciated him but it really bothered him like that sort of oh my god and it's funny because you think about what happened with the beatles they sort of started out as the band that young girls loved and were sort of considered a teeny bopper band quote-unquote when they first broke in the u.s and then became one of the greatest bands in history basically the Beatles shook that off and it worked for them because they made their careers and they did Eddie Sullivan and they blew up and blah, blah, blah. And now it's like no one thinks of the Beatles as a teeny bopper band. They think of them as one of the greatest bands to ever make music and a band that continues to influence younger generations. I think D'Angelo could have done the same thing if he was, but he couldn't shake it off. He wasn't able to take it for what it was and Keep it moving. And again, I think that speaks to his sensitivity and maybe that even his own team didn't realize. I interviewed Alan Leeds, who was his tour manager at the time and now his primary manager. He told me that he thought, yeah, video in concept was a great idea. It sold records. That's what it was meant to do. But he and Dominique Trenier underestimated how. Much of a toll it would take on D'Angelo emotionally. They just didn't figure that into the equation, because they figured he's a guy. Of course he's going to love all these women throwing panties on stage and wanting him and whatever. What guy wouldn't want that? You know? like <laughs> Leeds, Trenier, and other people around D'Angelo just didn't get that it was going to hurt him. That kind of attention, that kind of intense focus on his looks. That, again, that I think most people would think, why is that a bad thing? You know, they underestimated that that was going to be a pound of flesh taken from D'Angelo that maybe he couldn't get back. And it's a feeling that I think women experience a lot. I mean, women are constantly having, particularly in the entertainment industry, having to prove how worthy they are, how talented they are in light of how beautiful they may be. Like their looks have a higher currency than their talent. And so they have to sort of prove like, no, I deserve to be here. I deserve to be recognized as a talented actor, singer, et cetera. And please stop looking at my boobs. So D'Angelo sort of felt that. And I think he just didn't have the tools to process it. And that led to him becoming shyer, more reclusive, not doing videos, not doing a lot of interviews post-Vudu. I think he just sort of stepped away and then... In the early aughts, he lost a lot of people close to him in his life, his grandmother in particular, who passed away. And all of that just sent him on a downward spiral, which led to drug and alcohol use and him just really becoming probably the recluse that he is now.
0: So I think one could probably take away the fact that the video for Untitled, How Does It Feel?, changed the trajectory of his career. He retreated, as you said. I mean, like looking back on this though, in 2020, when you think about this artist that had so much potential, had such a massive following, spoke to so many people, particularly Black women. Do you feel like he still has an influence on the way that music is produced today? Do you feel like he still shapes the way that R&B is created in this age, considering that he chose to retreat after the peak of his fame?
1: Oh, absolutely. I think D'Angelo is still an influential artist. I think people still look to him and his work with wonder, with even awe. I think particularly his contemporaries still consider him one of the most talented singer, songwriter, musicians on the planet. And I think he definitely is an inspiration to Younger artists who are trying to break the mold and not do music that is predictable by commercial standards. D'Angelo is definitely a benchmark for, I would say, artists like Frank Ocean and her and Solange. I mean, you can hear it in their music that they are doing more complex arrangements and they're blurring genres. They're being very thoughtful and curious, I would say, in their lyrics, in the messages that they're saying in their music. I think voodoo is a blueprint for artists who strive to have that kind of malleable sound and emotional transparency in their lyrics. And also, I think the problem with D'Angelo is that he doesn't put out music a lot now. I mean, he did put out Black Messiah in 2014, which was very well received. And fans and peers are still like, when is the next D'Angelo album coming out? Are you like that? Oh, of course. I'm hoping it's soon. I mean, again, when I interviewed Alan Leeds, he said an album could come out this year. Now, again, that means nothing because time means nothing to D'Angelo. He will put out a record when he feels like it. So, Man, especially people- now. <laughs> well, right. Well, yeah. <laughs> time exactly. especially
0: means nothing right now. <laughs> and, oh, yeah.
1: Time is basically suspended <laughs> as we speak. Right. It's just like, what day is it? I mean, you literally have memes going, what day is it today? So, yeah, time is suspended. <laughs> But in a way, it'd be the perfect time for him to put out the album because people really would like sit down, listen to it, dig into it, as opposed to just sort of listening to it in the background as you work or you're driving somewhere or whatever. I mean, so like it would claim the attention probably of people who maybe weren't even that deep into D'Angelo before, because you would just be like, hey, I have nothing else better to do. D'Angelo has a new record out. Let me check it out. So if he was shrewd, if D'Angelo was shrewd, he would put out the album like in the next month or so. But that's the thing. If it's not ready, he's not going to put it out. And he will not release it until he feels it is on his caliber, that it is, in his opinion, ready for people to hear. But no, he's still an influence. And I think he's still important and a necessary fabric of the music world. But he's just one of those guys now where it's going to take him five to 10 years to keep releasing albums. I know there was a quote that I think Questlove said in a New York article last decade about how D'Angelo should have more records by now. I mean, he said it's a shame that he has such a short discography because he has such a large presence and such a large talent. And we have so few records that are commercially available to extract his genius from his abilities as a craftsman. And I mean, he's definitely still relevant. He's just on D'Angelo time. We just have to wait for him to put out more work.
0: Well, just in case D'Angelo's manager is listening, we are all waiting. (laughs) Yeah,
1: please talk to your boy. Tell him to put out (laughs) more work, please. Tell him to drop the new record.
0: (laughs) (laughs) In addition to like thinking about D'Angelo's legacy at large, thinking about your own experience writing this book, we're there are things that you learned about D'Angelo that really surprised you or excited you? Or was there something when you were sort of excavating through all of this material, writing this book that
1: jumped out at you for any reason? Oh, that's an interesting question. Well, I mean, not about D'Angelo per se. I mean, more about the industry, I guess. Not that I'm a D'Angelo Expert. Although I don't you know. Now, I feel like. Well,
0: that. you technically are. You literally wrote the book on it. I literally, got, well, I guess. <laughs> I mean,
1: yeah. But there's a lot more about D'Angelo that I think, again, because he is so media shy and doesn't do a lot of interviews, that there's a lot about D'Angelo that I think even probably close friends don't know. And that book, if anyone, like either a family member or even Questlove, frankly, decided to write a book about D'Angelo, that would be deep. There's just so much that we don't know about him. And actually, on that note, I would say, I don't know if it's available anywhere, but there is a documentary that came out, I believe, two years ago called Devil's Pie, D'Angelo, that is pretty good. And it's more of a like backstage look at how he operates as an artist. There's some biographical stuff there as far as him growing up in Richmond. But I still think if you're really a hardcore D'Angelo fan, that's also a good thing. In addition to reading my book, I think that's a good vehicle to learn more about D'Angelo. But I think actually the one thing I did learn while writing the book was that Charlie Hunter, who again is a very talented jazz musician, guitarist who played on voodoo and also co-wrote two of the songs, The Root and Great Day in the Morning, never got paid his publishing royalties (laughs) for those songs. I interviewed him and I was sort of stunned when he told me that. He said he had not gotten a penny from co-writing both of those songs. And The Root was basically his song. He brought that musical structure and melody to D'Angelo. So it's basically his song and he didn't get paid. And he has finally gotten some money. And again, I don't cast blame on it even he's like i don't really know what happened what fell through the cracks i think part of it is because he wasn't represented by a publishing company himself so there was no entity representing his interests yeah so charlie hunter even said that even now he's like i'm so happy to have worked on that album to have worked on voodoo that he would totally work with d'angelo again so he has no ill will towards d'angelo or his management But at the same time, like anybody else, Charlie Hunter has to pay bills. And being a talented musician is hard enough when you're not getting the publishing royalties that to do to you. So again, it's a reminder that this is an industry. I think even fans sometimes forget that it's great to have your name on credits and to have your imprint on an album as sublime as voodoo that will stand the test of time and inspire future generation of artists and to work with someone like D'Angelo. I mean, Charlie Hunter would not take any of that back. But at the same time, he's got a mortgage to pay. He's got two kids. He's got, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I think that it's just a reminder that, and particularly now when you have so many artists or people who put videos on YouTube and they dance on TikTok and they do all this. And it's like people have to get paid. They got to pay their bills. I mean like being Internet famous isn't enough. And particularly, again, in light of everything that's going on now where a lot of people are losing their jobs amid COVID-19 and they may have their hours cut back. You still have to be able to survive. And so that's what I was talking about before about devil's pie and the industry. It's not exclusive to African-Americans. I think African-American musicians have, like with a lot of other things, have been harder hit by corruption and immoral practices within Industries like the music industry. But I mean, Charlie Hunter is another example of a very talented man not completely getting his due payments for the work that he did, for the labor that he put out. So if writing this book and talking about that publicly helped Charlie Hunter get paid, yay. If that's my additional contribution to the world, in addition to helping people understand voodoo in a larger context culturally, I'm very happy about that because musicians, artists, that shouldn't be taken for granted that, oh, well, their name is in a credit and they're out there, meaning they're on tour, they're being seen on social media or whatever. So they're okay. They're not struggling financially, you know, or they're getting the income that they're due. So I think that was probably the most shocking thing as far as like what I came across in my research.
0: Yeah. I don't know why I didn't expect this, because he is so ubiquitous in every single way that he has actually been coming across in every single thing that I've been reading recently. But it was very surprising to me to see how Trump and
1: Central Park Five got included in the liner notes somewhere. Donald Trump has been a thing, particularly if he lived in New York in the last 20, 30 years. Saul Williams, the spoken word artist who wrote the liner notes for Voodoo. Had a line in the notes basically admonishing the hip hop community for what he said was a whole bunch of artists who seemed to idolize Donald Trump more than Sly Stone. And that was a thing where you had hip hop artists who would sort of drop Donald Trump's name in a track as a hat tip to his wealth and his Ubiquity, particularly in New York media. I mean, it just seemed like Donald Trump was everywhere. And that, that money plus fame equals power. So, And that was a big takeaway in hip-hop at that time, and still is to a certain extent. And I think what Williams was saying was that, again, and what did we talked about with Devil's Pie, where D'Angelo was really, he wants to express himself and be the fullest. And he wanted to be an, as expansive of an artist as he could be and challenge himself creatively, challenge himself creatively. Whereas you had artists who were, they just wanted to get paid. And so Donald Trump was sort of their, I don't want to say North Star, but like the guy was like their idol in the sense of he's getting paid, he's in the media everywhere, he's influential, he's rich, you know, that whole thing. And particularly for the hip hop community to embrace Trump like that, particularly when Trump has a history of racism and what he said about the Central Park Five who have now been exonerated for the brutal beating and rape of that woman. Trisha Melley in Central Park in the 80s, and he wanted them executed. Donald Trump called for their execution, took out ads saying that they should all die for something they didn't do. And that just got ignored because it was like, well, you know, he's popular and he was on The Apprentice and people wanted to emulate that kind of, again, power in the sense of being famous and being rich. And I think a lot of people, rappers, the media, the entertainment industry, got Donald Trump very wrong back in the day in that his wealth, Trump's wealth, made him immune to scrutiny at best. And for many people, particularly in the media, thinking he was an innocuous blowhard at worst. And we are seeing now in real time what happens when you miss the mark on someone like Donald Trump.
0: It's just so creepy, isn't it? It's like we missed the mark and yet we so didn't. Like the point being, as you were saying, that people, certain communities have been calling out Donald Trump for the last several decades. It's just that his glamour and his celebrity blinded people to what he was actually saying, which has always been... Racist and misogynist and homophobic, and all the things that you were just bringing up. We probably shouldn't give him more talking time or more (laughs) airtime than he already gets. On a final note, we have a book out called 33 and a Third's B Sides, which is asking former 33 and a Third authors about who they would like to write about or what album they would like to write about if they got a second chance to write a 33 and a Third. So if you couldn't write about voodoo or about D'Angelo, what would you want
1: to write about the
0: second time around?
1: I was actually thinking about that for a minute. And it would have to be an album that I love immensely. Like it just emotionally enraptured me to the core. And that also is musically a very tight and relevant album. And some of those albums have already. 33 and a third books have already been written about. And I think of OK Computer, there's already a book about that. Songs in the Key of Life, already done. Jeff Buckley's Grace, already done. So <laughs> some of them, people beat me to it. And I'm like, oh, OK, well, I can't write about that. Two came to mind. One would be the 1985 album Listen Like Thieves by In Excess, the Australian group that really blew up in the 80s. Again, that's an album that I really loved. I liked In Excess before that album came out. And then when it came out, I was like, wow. And I just remember people were saying, you got to see an Excess live. you got to see an Excess live. And I hadn't yet. And then I heard that album when it dropped. And I went, they can't be this good live. Because they recorded the whole album live. They didn't do overdubs and stuff like that. It was basically recorded like a live album. And I think I saw them like a month or so after the album came out in a small theater called the Aragon Ballroom in my hometown of Chicago. And I just went, whoa, okay, I get it now. And again, and so we're talking about like sex symbol status and what does that mean? And do people take you seriously? I think what happened with D'Angelo, with the entitled video, definitely happened with Michael Hutchins, the lead singer, where critics and fans alike, I think talked far more about Michael Hutchins being a sex symbol way more than NXS being a great rock band. So in some ways, Hutchinson's ascension into fame and sort of sex god, some people could argue overshadowed NXS, even though they were successful as a band. But I think as far as just the cultural the conversation that was happening, because I think that was the album that set everybody up for kick to kick, which that was their album after that. That was a big success worldwide commercially. I think Listen Like These was like the album that sort of catapulted them to kick and kick catapulted them to like worldwide superstardom. The other album I would maybe write about is Time's Up by Living Color. That was that group's second album that came out in 1990. Living Color was a big part of a collective in the 80s known as the Black Rock Coalition. And again, I mean, they were a rock band that, like I talked about with D'Angelo, that embraced R&B and gospel and jazz, a little bit of hip hop. Again, I think they were trying to sort of push the boundaries of what rock music was and also reclaim it as Black music. I mean, I think there was still this notion that white guys were the inventors of rock music, which is not true. (laughs) I mean, you would not have rock music without Black artists. And Living Color was part of that group, like basically taking rock music back as a part of Black culture, reclaiming it reclaiming it as blackness so those would probably be the two i would consider writing about (laughs)
0: honestly love to see both of those featured if not by you by somebody just because you made them both sound so freaking cool But anyway, that's all we have time for. I wanted to say thanks again. It is really moments like these. We're just talking to other people and reminding ourselves that other people exist outside the confines of our bedrooms and our living rooms to talk about music that really matters, to talk about a movement, to talk about the way that music shapes our lives. It's a good reminder. It's a very sobering reminder in light of everything going on right now. So thanks.
1: No, thank you, Rebecca, and thank you to Bloomsbury and 33 and a Third Books for giving me this chance to write about this album that means so much to me.